Hello and thank you for listening to episode 294 of 60MW. I'm Dave and this is another of our interview shows. And in this one I get to chat with Caroline Goodall all about her latest film, The Bay of Silence, in which not only does she act, but she also wrote it as well. Caroline was a great guest, as you'll hear, and I'm looking forward to having her back on the show some point in 2021. And there's so much to talk about with us. She's been in so many great films. And of course, regular listeners, you'll know, Obviously, I had to have a little bit of a chat about Cliffhanger and prepare your ears because you're going to get a great story about that, as well as all the news about the Bay of Silence, which is released today, the day of release of this show, September the 28th by Signature Entertainment here in the UK. A review of it by Tina is on our website. I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes, as well as ways that you can follow Caroline and the Bay of Silence as well. So sit back, relax, get comfortable and listen to me and Caroline Goodall. Have a chat about the Bay of Silence and a little bit about Cliffhanger as well. Caroline, thank you for joining me today. Uh, To say I've been looking forward to this is quite an understatement. So thank you for giving me some of your time all the way over in Croatia as well. Oh, wow. Well, thank you, Dave. I'm really, really honoured and touched. And um, as I was saying, I hope I don't digress too much and have too many ums and ahs. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's all right we're all about digressing and tangents it's all fine it's just a casual <laughs> chat <laughs> now we used to talk about the bay of silence of course but regular listeners they would think something was wrong with me if i didn't immediately begin with a little bit of cliffhanger talk if that's all right cliffhanger thank you yes i'd love to tell me Go. about your experience on that because it's a film i've seen it into double figures i watched it twice at the really? cinema yeah uh, i will say i was gutted when you got killed i honestly hand and heart i was actually gutted when you were killed if anything i was hoping you were going to kill john lithgow when i first watched it because <laughs> yeah he deserved to die didn't he but he then did. he wouldn't be churchill yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were the conditions on, on that movie, I've uh-huh. seen so many. I've seen so many making ofs on on cliffhanger, and some oh, really? were shot in the studio, of course, but a lot was shot on, on the mountains. What was it like in those conditions? It was brutal. I call it. I've done two what I would call extreme movies. One was Cliffhanger, and the other one was uh, Ridley Scott's White Squall, mm-hmm. which we did shoot on a tall ship on the water. And interestingly enough. Um, they don't shoot like that anymore because you can use VFX for everything. But we're talking the early Mm nineties and we did everything for real. I mean, of course (laughs) there was some green screen inevitably, um, but we were up there in the Dolomites uh, in Cortina d'Ampezzo and its environs uh, in Italy, uh, pretending it was Colorado, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it was actually, I have to say, probably one of the most extraordinary experiences I have ever been on because it was, we were like an army. There were five units. Um, I'd never been on an action film. I mean, number one, I had Stallone. I'm in a Stallone movie and I'm playing a bad girl and I'm dressed in leather and it was just so cool. I was so happy because I, you know, had my big break thank you, darling Steven Spielberg, on Hook. Um, But I was everyone's ultimate mother on that and I was so keen to 
do something completely different. And when this came up, I remember I read the script and I said to my agent, you know, there's not many lines in it. Uh, he said, no, it's an action movie. I said, yes, yes, I'm aware of that. I said, however, what I'm interested by is the fact that I don't die till page 90. So that's quite good. Mm. So I'm in it, really, aren't I? <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, I think you're, you're going to be in it. I said, I'm not quite sure how much because, you know, I'm part of a team with a whole bunch of other guys. Um, so I kind of knew going in that basically we, it was very much up to us what we made of these characters. And um, I knew I flew the plane. So from that point of view, I was a bit kick-ass. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, but nothing actually um, could prepare me for what being 12,000 feet up mm -hmm. on a mountainside every single day would be uh, with a helicopter unit uh, a stump unit, a climbing unit, a first unit, a second unit, which meant that there were about a thousand people all wow. to do with the film, all billeted in Cortina d'Ampezzo. And one of the things I was concerned about, along with, you know, all my other fellow bad guys, because we had quite a lot of time off, is are we allowed to ski? Yeah. Yes. Uh, are we insured to do anything when we're not working? Because being in a fantastic ski resort and looking out at the mountain from your little hotel bedroom and thinking I've got three days off and I may not be allowed <laughs> up there is it's like COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so we used to sneak out because we didn't dare ask anybody um, if we were allowed to ski and so we would ski out, we'd just sneak out and I remember there was this one day and I'm standing with a hat on and my ski goggles and um very quiet and I'm surrounded it was a Saturday morning I think by ADs and all the kind of crew who were going out skiing on their day off and I wasn't saying a word and I was pretending that I was Italian <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly I heard this Texan voice going, well, hello, Caroline, you going up mountain too? And it was the second AD. <laughs> I thought I totally rumbled. And um, so I went, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go have a little walk, I think, you know, kind of nice. <laughs> just, you know, walk around on my skis. Yeah. And then a few days later, John Lithgow, turned up in makeup and he had like panda eyes he had these white eyes and he was so tanned the rest of him it was obviously it was goggles so i said john were you skiing and he went oh no 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 i was uh <laughs> yes i just went up for a little walk to tinquatore in, in that voice that he has and we all turned around and said you're a liar and he went well well so then we all went to this amazing line producer who is kind of famous for doing all these, you know, huge action movies. And we said, Alan, this is Alan Marshall, we ha you, you, you have to let us. And he looked at us and he just roared out laughing. He said, do you honestly think you're not insured for absolutely everything? <laughs> And from that moment on, nothing was stopping us. Was and it was like, what, we're working? 
really? What day? <laughs> nothing, nothing got in the way of my holiday after that, my skiing holiday. <laughs> but yes, when we actually were working, it was incredibly tough. Um, and uh, because we were going up to places that were pristine and um, there was one particular day, which is a day when the helicopter had to land and I'm lying there and mm -hmm. um, I turn around and uh, I point the gun and um, I kill that lovely guy who's in the Waltons. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, in order for me to get out there and for them to have this shot, uh, only one pair of footprints could be in the snow. Of course, yeah, yeah. Of course. So we're all walking in one, you know, everyone, that one set of footprints. And then they lie me down and they gave me two flares that I had to lie on because I had to light these flares as well so that they would get this billow of red smoke so the helicopter could circle and it all looked fantastic from this huge wide shot of this just pristine snowy meadow and I also had a walkie-talkie and I had to lie on all of this so that when the shot came from the helicopter from above me that you wouldn't see any of this paraphernalia that was obvious that we're making a movie and the walkie-talkie was super important because that was the only way that they could communicate with me yeah. to say action light the flares, yeah. go, lie, you know, lie down, you're dead, pretend you're dead. And it was so icy, it was a glacier, and uh, we had a couple of false starts, so I, you know, had pulled out the walkie-talkie, and they said, no, 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 it's all right, wait. And I pushed it under me again, and this time it slithered out from me, and it just skittered down across oh, no. the glacier <laughs> and over. Oh, no. <laughs> And I thought, what do I do? The one thing they tell you when they're rigging these areas, the safety guys, is you don't move because it's so dangerous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could fall through, you know, off the, off the mountain. Yeah. But at the same time, they didn't know that I wasn't able to communicate with them. Oh. And they are oh. 200 yards away. Um, so there was this sort of silence. And then finally, a head pops up from across the way. And the first AD very gingerly walks in that one <laughs> pair of footprints towards me. While I am feeling so stupid <laughs> and so insignificant because the cost of this whole adventure... <laughs> was on my shoulders and I was ruining the day and the sun was going down and it had started to snow and this whole shot was going to be completely ruined and I could just imagine Rennie Harlan who was six foot six biking with this long blonde hair just wanting to scream at me and I felt so bad and then finally he got to me and he said what happened and I said the walkie-talkie Talkie's gone. <laughs> so he just gave me another one and said, fucking do it right this time. <laughs> so anyway, that was just one story. There there were so many, so many. But um I think we all it, it we have a little kind of Facebook group. Um it's still, I think, 
for most of us, 30-something years later, one of the most extraordinary experiences we've ever, ever had. And then, of course, we went to Rome. Um, and it's also where I met my husband, Nicola Pecorini, who was the ace cam operator on it who would ski backwards down a mountain with wow. Steadicam or run backwards across the bridge as it was blowing up with Stallone. It was all terribly impressive, yeah. So two children later, I have to thank Cliffhanger. <laughs> what a great story. Thank you. I, I could spend... <laughs> I could spend all morning and afternoon chatting about Cliffhanger and all your other movies. We should get you back on the show again, Caroline, at some point. Oh, thank you. I'd love that. Have a chat about your movies. Thank you. Because there's a great cast in Cliffhanger, and you've worked with so many great people, both in front of the camera and behind the camera as well. And the same with... Yeah, I feel really, really lucky, yeah. The Bay of Silence has got such a multinational cast and crew as well. Put mm-hmm. together, which which is always always good. And as a producer, and I know a producer, you have to wear so many different hats, don't you? And do so many mm. different things. What did you have to do as a producer to to pull in different parts? This is before we get even onto you writing the film <laughs> as well, the, the the screenplay for it. So what what was it like to be the producer on this? Um, it was a learning curve all the way along. Um, I obviously have been fortunate enough to work with extraordinary producers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, number one as a, a female producer, Kathy Kennedy on hook, who possibly inspired me certainly as a woman more than anything. Um, that was the first hundred million dollar movie ever. Mm-hmm. And of course, Steven Spielberg is a producer as well as a screenwriter and director yeah. and, uh, is able to, you know, multitask and wear incredible, you know, all sorts of hats. Um, but, you know, those are big studio movies. It's a whole different world. Um, I have made a number of um, independent films, and that was what I was looking to package. And um, I obviously have some mentors. Shout out to Andy Patterson, for example, uh, who is a fantastic British producer, uh, Girl with a Pearl Earring and Railway Man, uh, who's a mate of mine. And... Um, Michael Hoffman, who uh, is a fantastic uh, producer-director, who both gave me enormous support. Peter Gard, who was my executive producer, who is possibly one of the greatest European producers in terms of knowing how to access sort of grant funding and uh, co-productions and soft money and putting everything together. And he taught me an enormous amount about finance plans. But really, I ended up doing the Producers Forum in Cannes, um, working, you know, walking along the croisette as a foot soldier, as I call it, with all the other sales agents and producers and people with pitch decks and projects under their arms. And... um, setting up meetings at markets and doing it from the ground up. Um, I don't think there's any other way to do it, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, you know, the UK, each country's got its own particular way of financing films, mm-hmm. and we are very broadcast-driven here. So you have to go to Channel 4 or to the BBC, generally, uh, 
or a film board in order to get money for a movie. And I didn't really tick any of those boxes. And the film I wanted to do also, even though it was a British film, um, you know, with a British writer, a British screenwriter, which is me, and a British producer, um, and um, either, you know, British actors or, you know, uh, actors who are residents here, such as um, uh, Olga, uh, um, it was, it's also a cross-border film, and it's a European film in that sense, and I really felt that we needed to go to Italy um, obviously, it's set in France as well, but though we shot in Scotland uh, for that. Um, and I wanted a European sensibility. So it did mean that I had to package it a bit like a European film. And so I went about it. The Please stop me if I'm boring you because no, I'm talking no, fine. On. I find all this fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I did too, eventually, actually, I have to say, because I am, you know, obviously a creative, but my father was a businessman and I'm always fascinated by the two sides because it is a business, it's show business. Mm. And what I've always found, if I have a passion, it is to draw cl together more closely the creative side and the financial side. Yeah because it seems we don't understand each other terribly well. Um, we seem to think, you know, the sort of financiers seem to think that the creatives um, have to be managed and that it give us an inch and we'll take a mile. Um, and on the other side, the creatives think that the people who are involved with the money are stealing from them or trying to take things away from them or stopping them from actually, you know, fulfilling their vision. And what I found so interesting on this journey is that everybody's a filmmaker. And I have had conversations with people who hold the purse strings, who, as far as I'm concerned, know far more about movies, many of them, and are just as passionate as some of you know, the greatest creatives I've worked with um, and some of the greatest creatives I've worked with, the first thing they do is they talk about finance plans and budgets. And um, what, as if you're a screenwriter and you have an issue with the budget and you understand that because you're the producer, the first mm. thing you will do is go to your screenplay and you will say, okay, well, that goes, that gets cut, that gets cut. Um, and I can rework that. Um, and what I found interesting is that often the other side don't realize that you can work your head around making changes yeah. that will help. So they might just say, okay, you need to lose 10 pages. But I, I remember sitting there with a second AD who was getting a bit aerated uh, in prep. And she said, look, the budget for the vehicles is just so huge. And I said, well, we only really need two hero vehicles. You know, we've got the motorbike and we've got his car. And then, of course, well, Mil actually, Milton doesn't need a car. He oh, no, he has to. It, it, in, in, in scene six, he turns up in a Porsche. I said, well, that can go. No, no, it's in the script. I said, yes, but I wrote the script. But it's in the script. I said, but I wrote the script. He doesn't have a car, okay? And actually, Will can have a bicycle. I'd be very happy with Will on a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> and 
because suddenly she put in front of me, oh, and also we need this because, of course, you know, parking outside and then the nanny has a car. And I said, she doesn't have to have a car. We suddenly lost about 75,000 over one five-minute wow. conversation about vehicles that we didn't need. But she was so obsessed at that point with getting it all right yeah, and putting yeah. it all in so that movie magic looked good and it all was nice and it could all get printed up and then siloed and filed into done that bit. Mm, now I'm yeah. on to the extras. And I just thought, wow, we all seem to think just in a blinkered way. And that's why, and it seems to have got, more like that you know they used to be the days when everyone would sort of sit around a table and have a proper production mm -hmm. meeting and each department head would say what they think and you'd have time to make adjustments and increasingly with movies because the budgets have come down so much and they're yeah. so squeezed you have tighter and tighter prep times and inevitably when that happens, less rehearsal, less preparation means more mistakes are going to be made. Yeah. And often there's this idea that, okay, look, we'll figure it out when we get there. And you just know you're looking at it and you think, I know that we're going to have to go into our contingency on that day mm. because we won't have figured it out. And what happens if we do have weather problems? Where's the weather cover? Where's it? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, there is, what I actually really love is the logistics of making a film is so fascinating. But at the same time, the creatives can really help. And they seem to think that we're just in the way. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned the screenplay as well there, because if people listening to this don't realise it's, it's from a novel. Now, I've, I've yeah. never written a screenplay and I would think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I would think it would be more difficult to write a screenplay from a novel because you've got these set parameters. You've, got, you've already got characters and situations in people's mind from reading the book. And there's a lot, when you read a book, it's a totally different experience to watching a movie, isn't it? A lot, you imagine there's a lot on the page for you, but you bring a lot to it yourself. So when you're writing a screenplay from a book and you'd have to inevitably bring only certain things out. You couldn't film the entire thing or else it'd be a hell of a long movie. Whereas if you're writing something just, just from scratch, you can go wherever you want to. There's certain limitations. What, what on earth was it like, Caroline, to, to write the screenplay? And this is your, your, your first full screenplay and have these preconceived expectations from readers from the book as well. It's got to be that little bit more pressure. Am, am I right? Or am I just completely... Making it no, all up. <laughs> no, um, not at all. Um, I think there's a few answers to that question. The first one is actually most, if you look at the most films are adapted from a source material. Yeah. Very few films actually are greenlit that are, um, you know, just written. Um, it's very interesting. Um, I think partly because financiers always like to feel that there's something else out there in the marketplace that um, has had sort of like um, market approval, a kind of tick. Secondly, um, this book actually is uh, was published in 1988. Uh, I actually read it in the early 90s wow. and was just so taken by it 
and thought, wow, that would make a fantastic film one day. Um, and of course, it took a number of years for it to happen. But that happens in so many films as well. When you yeah, talk to people, yeah. the gestation of these things is uh, always so long. Um, and I think things have a zeitgeist. I think they have a particular time when they're relevant. Mm. And that's what happens. I, that's how they come out. Um, so from that point of view, um, I wasn't too worried because it's not an, a book that, it's not Dickens, you know, it's not, it, you know, it's, yeah. she's a wonderful writer, um, but it's not like there's legions of fans who are going to tell me off because I changed something. And thirdly, Lisa was so generous and um, we met and we talked and she lamented, she said, people have been trying to make movies of my books for so long. Mike Radford tried for a very long time, for example, to make Slow Train to Milan, which is one of her most famous books. And she says it never seems to happen. And I said, well, this book is so fascinating. It's written from two people's point of view for a start. And I'm not certain if that is the way in for a film. I think it should perhaps be more linear. And she agreed. She said it's quite a contemplative book, um, even though there's a lot that happens dramatically. Mm. And I said, I'm always, I've always been fascinated by psychological thrillers. And this just has a feel to me, partly because of the cross-border, um, European uh, locations. It feels like Don't Look Now. It feels like The Vanishing. Um, and the themes are similar. And I wonder if we could make a mystery thriller out of this. And she said, take it away. You've got my blessing. And she actually read a number of drafts. Um, and... Um, gave me some great insights as well so from that point of view I feel okay um I hope no one will tell me off um <laughs> and if they do I just say well it says based on yeah. <laughs> it's not quite inspired by but based on the novel and the important thing is that she should get the shout out that you know um it is completely her work um in terms of the main um the main story and the relationship between the two characters and what happens to them yeah. um and i don't think i'm doing any spoilers but the death of their child which completely rocks their world mm. um but otherwise i think you know it's it the film is always its own creature, its own thing. And there are so many adaptations of movies that we've come across that um, have taken it in a different direction, but it doesn't mean to say that it's any less valid. Oh, exactly, exactly. I mean, me and Tina watched it last night and we one thing that she commented on was how it was uh, unusual, really, and refreshing to see grief from the male perspective with the loss of a child as well Which, thank you very and, much and, for that and I'm, as parents yeah. that really hits we found and we've had this discussion on the podcast with a few people as well that of how when you're watching a film when you become a parent scenes like that hit so much harder too but for me as well for seeing it from the perspective of a father it was yeah it was very refreshing how, can I ask how old your children are? Yeah, my daughter will be 22 next month. 
and my son. Oh, great. Okay, so your grown kids up. are yeah. similar age to mine. Yeah, yeah. and twenty-one. Um, but we've got we've got people in the team who've got. It's like Chris. He's got two young daughters, um, and and he's found as well. We've had this discussion with him since he became a dad. Scenes in films which normally you'd be upset at. We're human, you know. You wouldn't just waft them away. Oh, a child's died or whatever. I vividly remember, and as silly as this may sound, the first film I cried at was Armageddon, believe it or not. And it's the scene at the end where Bruce Willis knows he's going to die and he's talking to his daughter. And the reason for that is my daughter had just been born. I'd just become a dad and I'd got a daughter and I watched this. And for the first time, I got it when I was watching a film. And it was... Again, without giving spoilers away, there's things that happen in this that, as a parent, be a you know a a, a dad or a mum, it really hits you, doesn't it? When things like that happen, I was oh whoa. Wow! Thank you so much. I've been so thrilled by the reaction of men to this film, and I do remember saying this uh, actually to my sales agents because. You know, the themes of, you know, there's a certain sort of Me Too feel to it. There is, you know, we're talking uh, the death of a child. We're talking about uh, trauma from a young age, sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. So these tend to be the territory that are seen as sort of what I call as female victim, women in jeopardy uh kind of themes and however we did turn it on our head and on its head and put it from the point of view of the man because i do feel very strongly that men are victims in this as well um you know this does affect the whole family and i felt it was important that it was through will's eyes partly because of the linear nature of the story in that we have to discover along with him what happens and obviously Olga's character of Rosalind um, if we get inside her head then uh, obviously the mystery isn't there <laughs> um, so from a plot point of view it has to be him but also more important um, and this of course is in the novel as well it's he who has to make that desperate decision um but you know and the decision he has to make at that fundamental point in the film uh which is do i protect my wife do i believe that she is innocent and do i protect her and if by protecting her, does that mean that I may not know the truth and I'm actually putting us both in jeopardy because I'm now committing a crime um, is a choice that is almost impossible. Um, and I've just been so thrilled by the reaction that men have had that um, they really respond to a man who's vulnerable, uh, a man who wants to take care of his family, a man who perhaps loves his wife too much. 
yeah. uh, who adores his adopted children, who loves this little baby boy with a passion, who wants to be at home, who wants to desperately have a family. And it's interesting that you don't know that much about Will. He doesn't have mm -hmm. a yeah. backstory in the way that she does. He comes fully formed. And the only ally he has is the character that I play, actually, that is his boss. And that's work-related. Yeah. And his boss actually is a little dubious about this new relationship as well. You can tell. Um, but that's also on purpose because you don't need to know his background because all you need to know is this man will do anything for this woman. Yeah. And, um, you know... Uh, uh, love that um, is unconditional. But at the same time, that question is there, which is how well do you know someone you love? And how many of us actually have leapt into relationships on faith without knowing that much about the other person? And sometimes you don't want to know because the mystery and what we project onto a person with our love and our hope um, and faith for the future of a perfect life um, is so important. And we don't want to mess that up by knowing too much about mm -hmm. their past and yeah. who they really are. And so he's confronted by that. And I think there's a lot of truths there that we've tweaked as well, because yeah. inevitably it's a kind of neo-noir and you do have these iconic characters. They are, you know, to a certain extent, they're archetypes, which is also why it was so important, the casting. Um, yeah. And Clace really is like an old-fashioned Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart um, in everything about him, his demeanor. Um, you know, he is like that throwback movie star from those times. And so is Olga. I mean, Olga, you know, reminds me of Faye Dunaway or Rosalind Russell. And, you know, she's got that, you know, iconic mysterious woman look and then of course brian cox who plays milton is just um it's the same you know it's 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 john houston in chinatown um also with brian uh because he's such a consummate actor and we're so used to seeing him in so many roles you're never sure if he's if he's a goodie or a baddie there are some <laughs> actors who you just know, you see them on screen and you go, oh, okay, well, he's bound to be the bad guy. Yeah. But with Brian, you're never sure because he's played a lot of good guys. Mm -hmm. and, and even Logan Roy in Succession, which is just, you know, his defining role. And it's just so brilliant. He's been nominated for the Emmy and Golden Globes. And he's just so fantastic with this towering character. You, Logan Roy, you also understand and have compassion for. Mm. Um, and you're never really sure who's the bad guy well, in succession either, yeah. you know? Um, and uh, so I think that was, I'm so grateful to Brian as well, all three of those actors. But Brian, I've known since 1985 when we were in the Royal Shakespeare Company together. Oh, and he's a great yeah. family friend. And um, he's always known that I've written and uh, wanted to, you know, one day make a movie when the time is right. And he's a producer himself. You know, he executive produced The Escapist, um, which was um, 
uh, Rupert um, writes, uh, oh, God, I'm sorry, I'm terrible with names. Um, first movie, you know, he then went on to Planet of the Apes, um, and he helped get that one up. You know, Brian is... Uh, such a secret weapon as an actor because he draws other actors. Uh, you know, to watch him and Clace chat away in between setups, talking theatre and this and that, and <laughs> Ibsen and Chekhov. It was just so fantastic. They just so loved spending time with each other. Um, and I'm really happy because then they've continued to work together. They did a lockdown project together, which Dolly Wells wrote and directed. Oh, um, and uh, it's just so lovely. So... There are so many things. I know I'm going around in circles and I have no, I can't remember the question you asked. I think it was about men appreciating it. Thank you. I'm glad you appreciated it. And I'm just going to finish with one little thing, which is that I do remember when I was shopping the script, one of the classic responses I would get is, yes, but he's a bit weak, isn't he? I mean, he doesn't really, you know, there's this whole idea that men have to, I don't know, blow things up or, you know, go, it, it's just, I think it's changing, thank God, but you're not allowed to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to, to let a woman into your heart. You know, these are all the tropes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I do yeah. think it's changing. Interestingly, I was watching Away, the new Netflix series with Hilary Swank set in, uh, where she's the astronaut going to Mars. Mm. And um, uh, Josh Charles, who was so good in The Good Wife, uh, as well as the lawyer, he plays her husband and he's left on Earth. So in a way, they've inverted it. It's like yeah. he's the wife character and she's the husband character. And he's so marvellous because he's taking care of the daughter, but also he... Um, you know, he had a health issue, so, you know, he's now in a wheelchair. Um, and it's just so great that we can now have those conversations and change up a little bit how we view our gender roles um, in film and how we're writing them because writers are tied with their hands behind their backs in just the same way as a producer might be or a director is by the people who are actually giving them the money. Yeah. And the people giving them the money say, well, the market wants X. And we're not just talking about a market that is the UK or maybe just America. We're talking China and Asia and places where, you know, they're thinking, will we sell that territory, which is now becoming increasingly important for a lot of these, um, you know, especially for studios. Um, if we don't have examples of men and women who actually jibe with that cultural aesthetic in that country. And so no matter how we think we might be changing and our views are changing. When you're looking at a film that potentially could go right across the world, we are also looking at seeing how, you know, certain cultures that don't necessarily agree with us are going to then just say, no, I'm not buying it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, you know, loads of, of things that 
we just have to kind of push that envelope slowly. Yeah, it's changing. Um, it's, it's changing slowly. Let's hope everything continues to change, but we can but hope, can't we? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've rather gone on. <laughs> no, no, this is, this, this is what I love when I'm chatting to people. <laughs> you can have a chat with me, it's fine. Listen, Caroline, I've taken up a lot of your time. For the sake of the edit, we shall say goodbye, but I'm hoping that at some point in the future that you can come back on because we've got a lot that we can talk about. You've done so much and you've still got so much to do as well that if you come back on, we can just have another good chat. And, oh, I'd and love that. And I'll tell a few jokes. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll hold, tell a few more jokes. I'll hold you to that now. <laughs> I got a bit serious. <laughs> but th thank you, really. Thank you so much for, for watching the film and for, for giving it a shout out. I'm just so thrilled that it's, it's getting out there. It's had some really great reviews in the United States. Um, and I'm really hoping that they take to it in the UK as well. I know that, you know, it's, it's got some themes that are quite demanding. But I think during lockdown, we've all, you know, I think we've all gone through kind of, you know, a lot of the entertainment. And we also want to, you know, maybe think a bit as well. And uh, they're all really easy on the eyes. And the, the cinematography is fantastic. Oh, and, and it's a great story. Well. And, the locations are beautiful. You know. it, begins with, <laughs> it begins with a scene. And the first thing Tina said as we were watching it was, I want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is, it's gorgeous. It's a World Heritage Site. And there were a whole bunch of people, actually, all on the other side of the beach. It looks completely empty, but uh, there are <laughs> so many people on the other side of the beach watching <laughs> while we tried to, you know, make it look like it was completely empty. Yeah. Lots of fun stories there. Oh, brilliant. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank Take you, care. Caroline. You too. All right, bye. 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 And the alarm bell, as always brings to an end another interview show. Another one which I hope you enjoyed, even half as much as I enjoyed recording it. I had a great time again, as you heard. And again, I'm looking forward to getting Caroline back on the show and having a chat about movies and lots more. You know where we are by now, 60mw.co.uk. There's a contact us form on there, or you can email us direct, contact at 60mw.co.uk. We're at 60MW Podcast on Instagram and Twitter too. Give us a follow on there and also on our YouTube channel too, where a lot of the interview shows and much more goes on. So until the next show, thank you for listening. Goodbye.